Hello, welcome to Life Beyond the Numbers, the podcast where we share stories, insights and strategies that go beyond some of the numbers we encounter in our work life. I'm Susan Lee-Trivon. I work with organisations who put people first. I've lived and worked in many countries. I've met people who love what they do and people who don't. People who bring their full selves to work and people who won't. And together with my guests, we place a lens on and focus in on the people side of work life. Because we know that it is people who do the work, not numbers. And if we are treated well, we will perform well and might even generate better numbers. Today, I am absolutely delighted to be joined by a fellow Irish person, Trevor O'Hara, also in Oxfordshire. So Trevor, you're most welcome to Life Beyond the Numbers. Hi, Susan. Nice to meet you. And uh, yeah, I've been following you for the last two years since we did Alison's course. And uh, yeah, it's great to be reconnected and to follow what you're doing as well. And you're interviewing some great people. So thank you, Trevor. Nice to meet you. Brilliant to have you here. And we get to meet properly because, yeah, we we connected on a course, but we never actually met. So this is kind of cool. Yeah, we've never been face to face on the Internet. No. (laughs) (laughs) And we live in Oxfordshire and we still haven't met. That'll be next. Well, we have been in lockdown for almost that whole time. Oh, that minor detail. Yeah. 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 So, Trevor, this might seem like a massive question, but maybe not, because maybe you'll have the answer. Well, I want to know what freedom means to you. Freedom, that's that's a good question. I think freedom is the ability to pursue multiple paths in life whenever you feel like it. Uh, I just got to the stage in life where I came to the realization that this linear life we've been living is pretty much outdated. And I know it is changing. Technology is changing it. Globalization is changing it. The pandemic is changing our mindset. And I know that younger generations are are able to do this much faster. But if you think that when I graduated in the 80s, the mantra was pretty much get a job, become a CEO, and that was it. And so there's this mantra of a three-stage life. So, you, you know, you go to university. You get an education, you have a couple of good years traveling the world to earn university fees, et cetera, et cetera. And then you get onto the hamster wheel and then you work your way up through life and then you retire and then you die. (laughs) If you were lucky, you sort of kind of had one life reinvention, which society would say it's a midlife crisis. And what I've come to realize is, well, hold on for a sec. You know, I'm in my mid 50s now. We've been slightly distracted by a pandemic, which has got us all thinking about, is this really what I want to do? And so on and so forth. And and so there were a couple of realizations. One realization is those three stages are are disappearing, you know? So everyone's saying life is getting faster and more unpredictable, and we, we should learn how to deal with change a lot more. And I've got my own thoughts about that. But one thing is for sure, we're living a lot longer. So it's highly likely that we're going to be living until we're 80, 90, 100. So sailing towards retirement at the age of 50, thinking, well, I've got another 10 years, 
what do I want to do after that? And I thought you could quite conceivably be working for another 10, 20, 30 years. So if the question is, if you knew for certain you could live until 80, 90, and you were in very good health, and you looked at the arc of your life, would you lead your life in a, in a, in a, in a different fashion? Mm-hmm. So I kind of thought, well, if I look back at my life, it's been a jumble of different chapters and some have been reinventions and some have just been, you meet somebody along the way or something happens and it takes you down a different path. And so freedom for me to answer your question is the ability to build a a portfolio. I mean, there's people call this different things, but a portfolio of experiences, a portfolio of projects, rather than just one single life path, life career. Does it take a certain type of person, though, Trevor, to, you know, you mentioned I might meet people and that will take me on a different path. But does that take a certain type of individual to say, okay, I'm going to let this job go and follow this guy down this path? Yeah, it's, I, I think some people are more comfortable with change than others, for sure. Some people are just scared of change. But actually, if you think about it, none of us really like uncertainty. Even if you think of our hunter-gatherer ancestors running around the plains chasing animals, we still look to signs in nature that will give us some sense of comfort around us so we could predict somehow when randomness was going to hit next. So we could protect ourselves. That's quite natural. I think what's made it more difficult for us is let's take humanity since the Industrial Revolution, where everything was you know, driven down in society in the name of efficiency, in the name of time saving and, and in the name of output. Society since, you know, certainly since the 19th century has become much more like, well, look, here's a framework within which you can be protected. So that's the way we went through school, sitting, you know, in rows, learning from the teacher about subjects that would just never have any use to us 20, 30 years down the road, preparing us for a career that we may like or may not like. But there were certain signposts in life to guide you along, right? So if you think of the modern society, so we've got a free health service in this country. If you, know, if you lose your job, you've got a certain amount of social protection and stuff like that. We have an education system. So we've become quite comfortable, almost too comfortable. I, I think we've become too comfortable, certainly in the last 20 years. We need to learn how to, to remove that and step outside of that and become more comfortable with discomfort so that we can find opportunities in, in, in the least likely of places. Mm. Yeah, that's quite an interesting observation that we've become too comfortable. And there's a psychologist that I follow 
she writes about emotional agility, Susan Davis. And one yes. of the things she says is the price of a fulfilling life is discomfort. Absolutely. Yeah. And that you need to go through all of those difficult, for want of a better term, negative, whatever we want to call them, experience as well, to learn and grow from everything. Yeah, and I don't think we're doing our children any favours. I think our generation in particular are guilty of model coddling, helicopter parenting our children to the extent that <clears throat> they're not even allowed to do a paper round on a bike anymore. Those things have gone. Or hanging out on the street corner with a bottle of cider like we used to do growing up in Dublin. My parents never asked us. I grew up in a household with nine kids. And as long as we were in by a certain time, children are... I think they're just we're way overprotected now. And there's one I live in when the kids were growing up in, in my village. It took an act of God to get my kids to walk from the house to the village school, which was like 50 meters away. They needed to be accompanied. And we said, no, no way. And it took all sorts of meetings with the PTA to break that. But yeah, it was like, like pulling teeth. <laughs> So that was the school enforcing that the kids shouldn't arrive unaccompanied. Absolutely. Wow. But that's society we live in, right? So be careful of strangers. Be careful of who you talk to. You never know. And of course, then you hear the stories in the media about, you know, this person was attacked and so on. But I, I think in the narrative that the world is becoming too uncertain and we need to become more resilient. Well, how can we, when we're protecting our kids and the very tools that we had before to deal with uncertainty, now we don't know how to deal with uncertainty. And then there's a vicious cycle of not being able to deal with uncertainty, which will lead to anxiety. Exactly. Which would just keep us in that kind of very easy to control, a bit like 1984, I think, if you played it out. Oh, yeah. And there's a cottage industry of leadership books that are making millions of this, how to become resilient. And resilience is, of course, you need to, to, to seek out uncomfortable situations. But resilience is it's not a panacea for discomfort. I'm a climber, so I do a lot of climbing. And, you know, as a good example, you know, so you could have, for example, somebody who spends $40,000 to climb Mount Everest, right? He's not, and he's, he's on the final base camp. He's going to make a push for the top. And the Sherpa says to him, well, we need to turn back because there's a storm coming in. And if you spend $40,000, you're going to go to the top. Like, I don't care. And, and so one would think that, You've done your training, you're resilient, you can get to the top. But then there's a thing in mountaineering called summit fever, where you're so focused on the objective that you will seek out that objective no matter what is thrown at you. And then it can kill you. Hmm. So, you know, resilience is, is only going to get you so far. So I suppose what I'm thinking about is it's, it's better to live and to experience things and try things and fall down and get up again and not to believe that you can go from A to B without anything ever getting in that way. I, I Yeah, and, and I think it's, it's back to how we've been educated because the traditional education system teaches us to 
aim high, aim big. And there are podcasts like the School of Greatness, and there's nothing wrong with wanting to be great and big and grand. The problem is that the higher your goal, the further you have to fall if things don't turn out. And so there's this narrative that says you have to be, you know, you've got to do the one thing, be single-mindedness, and if you fail, just get back up and be resilient and you'll bounce back. And a lot of these things are myths because, you know, I mean, just take bouncing back on the way to becoming a CEO. Well, you never quite bounce back. It's a bit like a cloud going over a mountaintop. The, it sort of just breaks up into different, into a, you know, whatever hits you in life is going to fundamentally shape you, reshape you in a different way. You will look at the world in a very diff- different manner. So setting these huge goals for yourself denies all the potential little things that can could happen to you along the way. It's a bit like you know, riding, galloping a horse through the forest. You've got your mind focused on the overhanging branches. But what you haven't looked at is all the tiny little things that are happening underfoot that just might trip you up or they may want to stop. So tunnel vision as such. Tunnel vision, right? And and the other problem with setting big goals sometimes is that you're making time your enemy. Because what you're doing is saying, well, in year three or year four or year five, I'm going to become a CEO or vice president of sales and so on. Or I've seen it a lot in, in the startup industry where you, know, you can't avoid it, but you got to you write a business pitch and you've got to produce your financial forecast and you're going to see, you know, here's my three to five year uh, forecast. We all know that it's, you know, we're going to fall wildly off target, but here's my exit plan. And both the entrepreneur and the investor know as well, okay, at least it's a finger uh, in the air. It's a flag. But what actually happens with all the little things that happen along the way? And the danger is that we become single-mindedly focused on one path that we ignore everything else around us. Mm. On the beauty of life. Yeah, and, and if, if it works, great. But if it doesn't work, the recovery time is a lot longer, which is why reinvention doesn't really work, because people say, well, I'm going to go reinvent myself. It's not that easy to reinvent yourself. It takes a long time to bounce back from a mishap. I think it's impossible because what does reinvention mean? You know, the the new you, there's no such thing as the new you. You're constantly changing and evolving all the time. So being agile in your career goals and your objective and in life in the same way that you would develop a piece of software little incremental changes that give you small micro pivots throughout life allow you to discover things that you never would have seen otherwise. You become a lot less busy because, you know, the, the five-year business plan is going to keep you so focused on this one big thing and you just ignore everything else around you. Mm. Whereas if you have a portfolio of three or four things, it breaks that up. It's a forcing mechanism to, you see things in a very, very different way. At least I do. So you have gone, Trevor, from being in one industry or one role to now having a portfolio career. 
Yeah. Yeah. And how was that transition for you? I think for me, it was natural because I don't know if this is part of being coming from a, a rainy, windswept island on the edge of the Atlantic. <laughs> but with four million people, you know, I, I, we're, when I graduated in the 80s, unemployment was almost like 35%. There was nowhere to go other than to leave. And I think we were just quite a curious bunch. So I went off to the States, my, my rucksack at the back of the exam hall, just picked it up and last exam straight to Heathrow. I had an aunt and uncle living in Oxford, stayed with them for a week and then ended up in Los Angeles, stayed there for a couple of years and then came back to Europe and lived and worked in a number uh, different countries, initially with some technology companies and then in the airport industry. And what I really liked about the airport industry was that you get to see a lot of things um, happening. So there's a lot of innovation in retail and technology and hospitality. So you're at the crossroads. It's a bit like what we were saying about proofreading and editing before that it becomes a, 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 a generator of opportunities where you otherwise wouldn't expect them. And so we were doing a lot of innovations in technology and hospitality, four different airports. We raised a lot of money from, for, for different products and that brought me into contact with the startup world and a lot of founders. And as an aside, I, I set up a, we, we didn't really have a, a name for it, but I guess you call it a mastermind now. It was sort of like an informal mastermind group for founders and CEOs of other startups, typically C to Series A. And the stuff we talked about was pretty much the stuff that is never talked about in the startup world. So more of the personal stuff. 70% were, were guys from a tech background, stuff that they couldn't talk to at home because they just felt that the wives wouldn't understand. But a lot of sort of really touching on um, mental health issues, dealing with changes in direction, Fathers with two to three kids, they're watching their bank account and coming home with a straight face. <laughs> and that was a tightrope to walk. And then we had the opposite, a couple of founders who'd actually <clears throat> exited from, from businesses, but had the same issue. They just didn't know what to do next because their entire identity was wound up in this one business venture. So, so reinvention and pivoting and uncertainty was all tied up in this. And it was almost like a board of advisors where people would tell you all the things you didn't want to hear from somebody you really understood because they were dealing with the same issues and could not, couldn't talk to. And so that really got me interested in this whole field of reinvention. Uh, and we, I wasn't charging for this. It was just a, a loose group. It's, obviously provided a lot of value because there was typically about 15 to 18 people in the group at any one time. And then during the pandemic, I looked at my own life and said, well, do, you know, do I want to be spending the rest of my life on a plane? The book got me thinking about, well, what's next? I need to grow an audience that got me involved in more interest in the internet. And that got me really excited by how do you let leverage the internet to build products and that's that's where it's taken me now. I've so we've still got the international transport innovations, 
but I'm at the stage of my life where I don't really want to be spending hours and hours and hours on a plane. And so I've decided to build well, I had it already. I had three or four side gigs that I decided to turn into revenue streams and build some of those in public and be open about my journey with other people and say, you know, there is an alternative way. And actually this whole talk about reinvention and a lot of it's bullshit. Reinvention never really sat with me. It's well, an evolution, no? It's an evolution. And I think if you have a portfolio, you don't need to reinvent yourself. If you think about it, if you have a portfolio of, you know, investments, let's take VCs with typically 10 startups in a portfolio, one or two will do really well. Three or four will sort of go along fine and the rest will fail gloriously. And I think that's the same. And there are lots of people building that now. They may have one or two of their projects that take up most of their time, but then they're doing online courses. They just, as Jack Butcher said, you know, build once, sell twice. Mm. And so I, I think there's tremendous opportunity if you know how to leverage the internet, build a following. And so that's, that's where I am. I'm fascinated by this whole, I'm being contrarian, you know, part of my calling is to sort of dispel the myths about change and reinvention and uncertainty, because I think a lot of them are just, uh, frankly, old wives' tales. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love that word, contrarian. Contrarian, yeah. <laughs> That's a great word. But it was really interesting, because when I was doing my research for this episode, it helped me see that I have a portfolio. Hmm. Even though I kind of thought that my main business was where 80% of my energy or 90% was going, actually, there are several strings to my bow at the moment, and there are different revenue streams. And that was really helpful for me to see that I didn't need to be just beyond the numbers, that actually there was this other stuff going on that I was also enjoying doing. Yeah, and I think it's healthy because it gets you out of the trap of looking for your single North Star or your life's purpose or getting unstuck. If you have a portfolio, you're not going to get stuck. Well, you, 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 that's, that's, that's exactly, you, of course, you, people get stuck all the time, but the moments of stuckness tend to be a lot smaller because you're fulfilled in many different ways. Now, the skill is at managing time and managing that portfolio. And you could do that. You could use one to leverage the other. But look at the film industry. Isn't that what actors do and movie producers? You, a producer will you know, bring together actor stagehands for one project, the movie, and then the whole thing will just dispel and move on to something else. And some of those people will collaborate on other ventures uh, and other projects throughout life. And they'll go to the theatre. Exactly. Yeah. 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 So it's true. And it's letting go, I suppose. It's back to the uncertainty thing, isn't it? It's letting go of wanting to feel certain about where things are coming from and actually not spreading yourself too thin, but being discerning about where you put your energy. 
Yeah, and, and you've hit, I mean, that you've used the phrase there, the magic phrase, letting go, because I think, again, it's one of these byproducts of the industrial revolution that we've all been taught to accumulate. We accumulate wealth, we accumulate knowledge, we accumulate stuff. And we're not very good letting go of, of, of many things. So our identity, again, back to the CEO, our life goal is to be a CEO. And you can see that if you just look at LinkedIn profiles, for example, you see a straight, a diagonal line from bottom left to top right. And there's no messiness in there. You know, it's all predictable. <laughs> there's no sign of failure or mess or, or the gunk that tends to, you know, oil the wheels, just jam the wheels of life, which is really the essence of the human story. That's the stuff I'm interested in. And, and it's the stuff most people are interested in. Well, we edit. What we do is we edit it all out. Because when we go to an interview, that's the stuff that we don't want people to see. And we think that society doesn't want to see that. Mm. But if I was you know, a startup founder, if I were back in the startup world, they would be the people I would hire. Mm. Mm. But the problem is that we're so, we're so wound up by definitions of success and identity that when a curveball hits, not if a curveball hits, we find it very hard to let go of that episode in our life. And it could be relationships. It could be an assumption about life. It could be a story. I would just always remember to my dad telling stories. He said, Dad, you said that story like 30 times. Could you just let it go now? Just leave it. That happened 30 years ago. And we all Move do Move on already. <laughs> Yeah, we, we're not very good at letting go of stuff. And, and I think that's part of being agile and part of building this portfolio of experiences helps you to do that. Moving around a lot helps as well. I mean, I think I've lived in seven different countries or something and worked. So every time you move, you really have to think carefully about what you're going to bring with you. <laughs> and you can let go of some of the stories that go with things as well. <laughs> Totally. I, I saw that. I was, uh, when I was following you, I said, you've been in some very interesting places. And mm. so I'm sure you've got some very interesting stories to tell. Absolutely. Watch out for that book. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but but tra tra travel is, is great. It's a, it's a fantastic eye opener for that because it teaches you so many things about humans. One, we're all the same. We've all got the same emotions and, and needs and wants and desires. But at the same time, we've got different ways of doing things. We could be a human being. We have two eyes and nose and a mouth and we listen in the same way. But our ways of responding to each other are totally unexpected. And the ambiguity, you know, so everything I've done, like you, I've, I've lived in many places and just working with international teams teaches you don't take anything for granted. Because when you're talking to somebody who's been raised in a completely different value system, yeah, yeah, that teaches you a lot. It really does. And the paying attention, especially to the very subtle cues, because often the differences are subtle, but they're there. Yeah. And some yeah. people are blind to it. <laughs> so, yeah. But something else you talk about a lot, Trevor, in, in the, I've been reading some of your blogs, it's randomness and luck. 
Yeah. And now we've touched on it a little bit here, but maybe <clears throat> tell us a little bit more about randomness or luck. We tend to discount the value of luck in our lives. Again, another output of the industrial revolution is that everything has to be planned and efficient. So there's this image of life being like a chessboard. So when I started my career, I started my career in strategic planning in Eastern Europe, doing long range uh, forecasts for the World Bank, raising lots of money for telecommunications com companies. And a long range forecast was 10 years. And, and we had all sorts of scenarios. Scenario planning was ingrained into me, but it doesn't really matter if you've got plan A, plan B, plan B, plan, plan C, all the way to plan Z. None of it's going to work out the way. <laughs> and, and so we, we know that. So even now, so we can say the world has always been uncertain. It is becoming more uncertain because of technology and, and complexity, the way things are just interrelated. But we're just addicted to prediction. Totally. We want to know what the outcome is going to be. Yeah. So we're fixated on the news. Are the, are the Russians going to invade Ukraine? Are they going to, are they going to invade? Are they going to invade? For example, we all revert back to that sense of well-being. Not saying we should just get rid of planning and forecasting. That's not a healthy thing either. But I think we tend to discount the role of randomness and luck much more than we give ourselves credit for. So an example, if we were to treat life as poker, not chess, right? <laughs> so what's the difference? So you look at outcomes, right? So you're playing around a poker. And I think it was Annie Duke, the famous poker player, professional poker player, says, life is poker, not chess. So a lot, a, what we tend to do in industrial age thinking is we'll have an outcome. And we will assume that outcome has got something to do with the decision we made. That's chess. Input A equals output B. Whereas in... In poker, you've got four possible outcomes. So let's look at the outcome. So you got uh, bad outcome, bad decision, bad outcome, good decision, good outcome, good decision, good outcome, bad decision. But we don't look at out the association between outcome and decision that way. We say, okay, here's the outcome, and that's the result of, of our decisions. I'm a CEO because I'm smart and clever. I got fired because I'm bad. You know, I just didn't perform well. And you see a lot of this in the startup world. I didn't get funded because I didn't make all the right decisions. You know, it, there's all sorts of things that can happen in that messy middle as to why, why not you got funded and you weren't successful. But we will never say a, a, a good outcome is a result of a bad decision. Most of us don't do that. No. So, like a mistake, almost an accident. Yeah, and a famous phrase, for example, is "I won't do that again." Mm -hmm. ah, well, not, that's to assume that you know the same set of events are going to repeat themselves, and you do exactly the same thing all over again. Well, the universe doesn't work that way. The universe is random. Everything is random about it. So you can have a hundred permutations and combinations of events. It's the same play. So I'm sure if you interviewed actors on a stage, they would say every single night is a different play. The audience was terrible. <laughs> we did exactly the same thing. We've closed our eyes. We know our lines off by heart. 
but it just didn't feel right because the audience was different or an actor was off and that can sort of just influence. And there was a famous statistic that says if you have 100 people in a room, there's an 80% chance that three people will have the same birthday. Yeah. Something like that. No, it's something like that. And it's just funny because there's 365 days in the year. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And I, I think chance and randomness is everywhere if you learn to look for it. But the problem is we're so busy and we're so focused on efficiency and output and, and, and busyness and being on the hamster wheel that you never get a chance to, to spot it. So it's trying to get in the way of luck and spotting when luck can happen. Yeah. And I, I've seen that so many times in the airport industry where you're sitting in an airport lounge and I've been doing it for so many years. I make a point of just talking to everybody. <laughs> Really? <laughs> because <laughs> I know that's being Irish enough, but it's that you just never know where conversations lead. And it's the same with we we're talking about the proofreading and editing business. People talk about proofreading and editing as, as if it's a rather anal exercise in crossing the T's and dotting the I's. But a lot of the work and opportunities that come from that business is because the relationships you forge with the customers, they all tend to be investors or directors or entrepreneurs, and they're entrusting you with a confidential document. You provide your insights and that opens up conversations. Mm. So mm. it is there. Mm. It is, no, it, it's definitely there. And I have lots of stories of random occurrences and, and look over the years that you know it's there but we do like to look back and think that somehow we engineered it I mean exactly I think we predict forward but we also like hindsight we kind of think that oh yeah well that was bound to happen rather yeah. than just go oh actually that was pure luck yeah and I think if we just acknowledge that and also make time to spot luck you know, the famous Viagra story, you know, no. that's a classic, <laughs> classic example because Viagra Oh, yes, was, yes. It was meant to know, be something else, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, the, the pharmaceutical industry spends billions in research and development. The purpose was never meant to be for that purpose until the, yeah. some guy came along and said, hey, I've, I've got this funny side effect. <laughs> Can you look into it, please? <laughs> doctor, doctor. <laughs> I, I have this problem and it's not what you gave me the pill for. <laughs> Yeah. And so history so, was changed. <laughs> history was changed. And if you sort of look at some of the most innovative products, uh, innovations, a lot of them have come as a result of, of, of luck. So we're almost out of time, Trevor, but I do want to ask you about your book. I know you've yeah. been writing a book and it's about the concept of agileism, I guess, is, the, is how we would pronounce it. Is that correct? Agileism? Yeah, I think agilism is the is the placeholder for the time being because I can't quite think of another title. And so I finished the first draft. And I think agilism is, in a sense, the same as minimalism or essentialism. People say, no, you can't use that word because it's a software development term. And so the origin is from agile software development. When I came across Agile, I'm I'm not a, a developer, but I led software teams in the past. And Agile development to a non 
developer like me just blew my mind. Because there are still a lot of people, believe it or not, who go out there and spend a lot of time and money building products that nobody wants. And you could go down the road four or five years and you can't get back that time. I'm just kind of fascinated by Yuval Harari's book, 21 Lessons for the 21st Century. He was saying, you know, the single biggest skill of the 21st century is the ability to reinvent yourself time and time and time again. And it's essential to emotional agility. So that really struck a chord. And a lot of the words that we've been talking about, such as bouncing back and resilience, and these are words that we just don't quite sit with the world we're just about to enter with Facebook's new venture and the metaverse and stuff like that. I think things are going to get a lot faster. And, and, I, and I, I do agree that you know, things are becoming more uncertain. We do have to change. But I don't think it's changed in the same way that, that people talk about it. We already have the skills. Uncertainty was always there before the Industrial Revolution came and put this nice little placeholder on everything. Right. So we have to learn how to get rid of there's a huge amount of man- mantras in, in our life that we have to get rid of. Thinking outside the box, for example. There is no box. <laughs> you know, think it, just forget that there's a box. Because you know, all you're doing by saying thinking outside the box is there's a box for you to climb back into after. You know, there's a, there's a safe place for you to retreat to. No, there isn't. Just, just go out there and start experimenting and start going off the beaten track and start following, trying to find your single life purpose and your North Star. Stop thinking about a midlife crisis because if you're going to be de- living until you're 70 or 80, um, there, is, there is a need for a different set of skills. And I don't think it's hard. The, the challenge is as we get older, the less we want to change. We tend to get more stuck in our ways. So a lot of it's about removing a lot of these myths and mantras. A lot of it's about making failure more accepted and acceptable in society. It's about working. People in their 50s and 60s are finding it very, very hard right now. Whereas millennials and Gen X, it's, it's second nature to them. They're already doing it. If you're sort of mid-career and you've got a young family and you want to change direction, thinking, well, I didn't quite, I don't want to do this. Why did I spend five years studying law and I'm just feeling empty every morning? And the feeling stuck when you've got a young family, it takes some time to clear some space. So essentially, agilism is about seven principles, seven basic principles, and there's nothing complicated about it at all. It's really portfolio thinking. And uh, yeah, I hope to finish the second draft this year. Fantastic. Well, we'll invite you back to talk about it once it's out. Thank you, Susan. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, I'm looking forward to reading it. And maybe just before we go, you tell us about doing nothing. Oh, it's great. (laughs) It's hard. It's a hard habit to develop. It's something that I discovered because the only um, time that I can find I can switch off and fully unplug is in the mountains. I'm a climber I, and I take people on I'm into the mountains and I, I love that. That's the only time I can just really focus on nothing. <laughs> if that's, yeah. And, and I find that every time I come back from those climbs of just being in, in nature, 
you come back to life and see things in a very, very different way. And so that's what we do now. And, and we always did it with the kids growing up. We Every year we went to into the wilderness for three three weeks every year, took off watches. There was a rule, no watch, no, no electronic devices, no mod cons whatsoever. And you start to learn how to tell stories and make use of that time and see things from a different perspective and think about things that you just, you know, it's there in your brain, but you're just so busy. And so if we found, I mean, just like during the pandemic, when we were in lockdown, we were forced to sit there <laughs> and, and do nothing sometimes or assess. And I think doing nothing sometimes forces you to think about time in a different way. So we think of time as Kronos, where time is our enemy. This is another thing from the Industrial Revolution, but the, the Greeks had another concept of time, which is Kairos, which is what is it time for? And I think part of portfolio living is being able to say, okay, what is it time for? Being able to pull the plug. In those moments, so in those interstitial spaces between one chunk of your life and the next, that's where you're going to spot randomness. That's where you're going to spot opportunities. That's where you might make a slightly different decision. Your decisions are not emotional. You're pulling back. And uh, yeah, I just think it leads for a much healthier lifestyle to become less anxious about things we just get far too wound up by too many things too easily <laughs> yeah <laughs> i know it's not easy sometimes but uh yeah oh no i i really enjoyed that conversation trevor thank you and there's some just great like ways of, of for people to think about where they are and think about what is next and i think what you said about if you are pretty certain and as certain as we can be that you're going to live to be 80, 90, 100, well, what are you doing today and how long more will you work for? Yeah, and, and for me, the whole concept of sacrificing the present moment for a future potential payoff where you're doing absolutely nothing other than spending 20, 30 years on a golf course, that horrifies me. <laughs> I mean, other people may, you know, and some people say, well, I can do all these other things. But if you're leading your life because money, you know, you can do that now. You could just re reassemble your life in a different way, retire 35, take a sabbatical for a year. Yeah. Do that three or four times throughout life. What's the yeah. difference? Exactly. Exactly. Mini retirements. I'm all for them. Me too. <laughs> Brilliant. Trevor, thank you so much for your time today. Yeah, it's great chatting, Susan, uh, as always. As always, and um, take care. Yeah, likewise. All the best. Bye now. Thank you for listening today. And if you enjoyed this episode, please share it with someone you know who would enjoy it too. I believe we are all entitled to enjoy our work, and the future of work life will be changed by those who put people first and create more fulfilling work lives for themselves, their colleagues, their teams and organisations. If you have any suggestions for topics you'd like to have covered, guests you'd like to hear from, or questions for me, please drop a line to susan at beyond-thenumbers.com. And finally, please consider leaving a review.